<laughs> All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is what? Episode 14. <laughs> so not next week, but the one after is Halloween. Yeah. Are you keeping your topic a secret for that one? Yeah. Maybe because you don't know what it is yet. No, I already know what it is. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We talked about it earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Nice. Okay, he knows what it is. <laughs> secret. I'm doing, um... Yeah, I'm not going to tell you that either. We'll keep that a secret, too. I think I told you. Uh... <laughs> I don't remember. No, so... Okay, so, do you want to tell yours first? Mine's long. Yeah, maybe. Mine's long and not happy, so. I mean, you at least have some fun stuff to finish off with this time. Yeah, I have some funny things, but. Yeah, I can do my first time. Okay. It can get out of the way. Alright, so Will's <laughs> going to do his story about something called a wahila. No wahila. Alright, so I'll let you do that. Alright, so, <laughs> hi everybody. I'm going to do a little bit of coverage on a cryptid called the Wahila. Hey. Did you ever hear of it before? No, not before you told me you were doing it. All right, so neither <laughs> have I. All right, so on this week's episode of Cryptids, I'll be covering the Wahila. So this week, it'll be an educational episode for me also, as I actually have never heard of the Wahila until I decided to cover it. The Wahila is a northern Canadian legend of the Northwest Territories, the origins of the stories comes from the Inuit legends of northern Canada. One creature in Inuit legends is the Amarok, which is said to have a strong resemblance to the description of the Wahila. They describe the Wahila as an evil spirit that has supernatural powers, but some people believe, believe that the story of the Wahila is based on wolf attacks in the area and the explanation of missing members in the tribe. Modern fuel for the stories of the Wahila are the reports of two miners in 1908 that were murdered and were found with their heads missing. Since then, there have been numerous murders in the area. Even though there have been accounts of the Wahila ranging all across Canada and even portions of the U.S., the majority of the stories and sightings have come from the Nahani Valley, which was a story actually covered by Caitlin a few episodes ago. I think it was episode 6. Yeah. Um, so the area, even without the stories and sightings, is interesting thanks to the sulfur geysers and hot springs, which keep the temperature of the area higher than the surrounding wilderness, which causes the valley to almost be in a constant cover of mist that makes it hard to see and navigate, making it an absolute perfect spot for something like the Wahila to hide away from prying eyes. The Wahila is described as being a massive wolf-like creature that stands about four feet at the shoulders. Most of the stories come from the oh Lord, come from the Nahani Valley, which is given the nickname of the Valley of Headless Men, due to the fact that the Wahila apparently likes taking the heads off of its victims. Yeah. Yeah. I read about that. There's a few <laughs> different valleys with weird, ominous names. <laughs> Yeah, I want to figure out all they are. Well. <laughs> Alright, so <laughs> there have been numerous murders in the Nahani Valley where the victims have all been decapitated. 
and the blame all went to the Wahila. So not a single person apparently did the murdering. It was all a, a <laughs> mythical creature. Blame it on the fakes. Yeah. Uh, the Nahai <laughs> Valley is located 850 kilometers west of Fort Simpson and is not inhabited by any humans but has many species of creatures that roam around. This is due to the belief that if you enter that valley, that the Wahila will catch you and rip your head off. All of the local tribes avoid entering the valley at all costs in fear of it. There have been as many as 44 people who have disappeared in the area. Similar to the Ontario White Wolf, and also at times considered to be the same animal, the Wahila or Saber Wolf is a large wolf-like creature said to inhabit Alaska and the Northwest Territories, and even parts of Michigan, there have been reports. <laughs> it's said to be larger and more heavily built than the standard wolves that we know, and to have pure white fur-like snow. Great. So these are some of the stories of the Wahila that I found. Okay, hang on. So I found the Bernat Nahani National Park Reserve. Some of the areas are called Dead Men Valley, Headless Creek, Headless Range, and Funeral Range. What the? They're, they're a little <laughs> ominous sounding. <laughs> <laughs> I would say. All right, so. Back um, to your story. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one is, in 1908, two bodies were discovered in the valley, missing their heads. Their names were Willie and Frank McLeod, who were attempting to reach the Klondike Rush. They had been missing for almost two years, with many thinking that they had hit the mother load. This caused no search party to be sent out looking for them. They were discovered by another prospector expedition who found the two headless bodies abandoned in the valley. That's quite some time to disappear. Yeah. How long? Uh, two years. Two years. And no, everyone was like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 19, so number two is in 1917, the body of Swiss prospector was found headless. His name was Martin Jorgensen and his body was found next to his cabin, which had been destroyed by a fire. Hmm. So that's not really all that ominous. That makes you wonder if it was a, a murder. Yeah. Uh, number three, in 1945, an unnamed miner from Ontario was found decapitated inside his sleeping bag. That's not very nice. No. <laughs> uh, number four, a man named Frank... Frank Graves led an expedition in 2018 in search of the Wahila and recalls seeing the animal. He was in a First Nation guide, sorry, he was with a First Nation guide hunting for food on top of a bluff. The guide left Frank alone for a moment to get closer to some birds to shoot. While Frank was alone, a large beast emerged from the forest towards him, looking like a wolf on steroids. In fear, he unloaded both barrels of his shotgun, hitting the beast. The animal, seeming unfazed but not wanting to get shot anymore, turned around and began to walk back into the woods. Frank reloaded and shot the large monster in the rear, but it just kept slowly walking away. <laughs> That's a big wolf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wolf bear thing. <laughs> uh, the guide quickly returned to Frank's position thinking that he shot an animal to eat. Frank began to describe what he saw, but suddenly the guy told them, told them? I'm going to say that's my typo. Good. Told him they needed to leave to get back to their base camp as fast as possible. 
Once there, Frank finished telling his tale, and the First Nation member in the group told him that they believed he had seen a Wahila. One little side note to this story is that Frank was an active fan of cryptids and went up to the Northwest Territories of finding the Wehila. He was put in contact with the other members of the expedition by a cryptoid author. Might all be coincidence that he actually found what he was looking for, but maybe it's not. The Canadian Mounted Police have done their own investigations on the area expressing concern for the incidents that have happened there, but downplayed anything being special with the area. Many of the locals in the area blame the disappearances of the 44 people on the Wahila, but some others blame the local wildlife, such as bears, for the grueling murders. Which, I mean, that I can see too. Yeah. I mean, if a bear swats you one time in the head, it can take your head clean off. Yeah, it could be a bear Hungry wolf or anything. Hungry human. Hungry human. One explanation for the Wahila is that they are just normal wolves that are bigger than people are used to seeing because they live in the north. It's not uncommon for animals who live closer to the poles to be larger in size compared to creatures who live closer to the equator. Hmm. Which, I have a thing for that. It's... It's in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> that, uh, that theory. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, some theories over the years have speculated that the Wahila could simply be a normal wolf who has been shunned from the pack for having gigantism. While others speculate that the lone white wolf of the Northland could just be some sort of white bear, perhaps a spirit, or a kermode bear, or a starving albino black bear. The most intriguing theory in my mind, though, is that the Wahila could possibly be the extinct bear dog, which was neither a dog nor bear, but someone the size of the largest bears and had dog-like features to them. How awesome would it be if bear dogs still roam North America to this day? No, thank you. I uh, mean, from a distance, sure. <laughs> I will call it... Clifford. Clifford the big bear dog. Yeah, Clifford the big red. The big bear dog. Clifford the big red bear dog. What is wrong with you? (laughs) Uh, There's a list. Ongoing. (laughs) Uh, So, for our speculative Wahila, though, we will avoid it being a survivor of prehistory and adhere Bergman's rule. What is this? So, for those that don't know what the Bergman Rule is, Bergman's Rule is also an eco-geographical rule which says that the size of animals are influenced by the environmental temperature and the body size decreases, which increases in temperature, while with decrease in temperature, the body size increases. It's a whole lot of mumble-jumble. Yeah. (laughs) It's basically saying that depending on your climate your body can change size like how the woolly mammoths got so big yeah for where they lived the wahila is indeed not a true wolf but a very close relative apparently (laughs) it seems that during the last ice ages some ancestral wolves began 
became more adapted to the cold tundra and woods of Canada and Alaska. The result of the Wahila is a large wolf-like dog of substantial size with a large head, a shaggy white pelt, and large snowshoe paws. It's said that the Wahila live in smaller packs than their counterpart, true wolves, but will hunt larger prey such as moose, full-grown bison, and even bears. Hmm. Regular I, wolves don't even hunt bears. Yeah, well, even bison. Like, bisons are huge. Though they hunt, they'll hunt bisons, but not full-grown. Mm-hmm. Uh, their jaws are said to be better adapted for crushing bones, and can consume more of the carcass, leaving less hints at their existence. No. So, the <laughs> next time that you want to go wandering in the cold Arctic, or Michigan wilderness, don't lose your heads to the Wahila. <laughs> just don't do it. Don't yeah, just don't do it. <laughs> uh, so, for the Wahila, I got my information from the legend of the Wahila expressed to nowhere. Uh, the Wahila, the Great White Wolf of Northern Canada at mysteriesofcanada.com. And the Wahila from Fandom on Wiki. There you go. Wikipedia, Fandom. Yep. Now I've learned something new again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there wasn't much coverage on the Wahila. Don't know. No. Well, I'm about to ruin everyone's day with this story. Yeah. <laughs> How rude. Yeah. So I am doing, you. we were, well, I was, I don't know, six and seven years old when this all happened. So I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember seeing it on the news and stuff, kind of. But it's the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamolka. You know a lot about it. A pair of sick assholes that should be dying in jail. Oh, yeah, well, one might, but the other one's roaming around. Oh, they should both be dying in jail. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. So the two main sources or pages I used were for uh, Wikipedia and Murderpedia. So, tons of fun. Two very trusted sites. Yeah. Especially if it comes <laughs> with the word murder yeah the name of it <laughs> um there's so much information on this like but it's all repeated like all the information's repeated on everything there are sites i didn't even look at because they have crime scene photos and like there are tapes that you can listen to Ooh. i'm like no not doing that so <laughs> all right let's do this um so paul sorry paul kenneth bernardo was born august 27th 1964 Unfortunately, a week after my birthday, (laughs) but several years before. Um, uh, Paul was born into a wealthy but dysfunctional family. His mother, Marilyn, was adopted by Gerald Eastman and his wife, Elizabeth. And so Gerald was a successful Toronto lawyer. And so Paul grew up with like a normal, stable, well-off childhood. Um, Paul's father, Kenneth, was the son of an English woman and an Italian immigrant, and they owned a very successful marble and tile business. Kenneth's father was abusive toward his wife and child, even though he had all the success. Kenneth was expected to enter the family business, but became an accountant instead. Kenneth Bernardo and Marilyn Eastman were married in 1960, even though Marilyn's father disapproved of Kenneth. Kenneth was also abusive toward his wife, Marilyn. 
They had a son and a daughter, and then Marilyn had an affair with an ex-boyfriend and had another son, Paul. Kenneth tolerated his wife's affair and is listed as Paul's biological father on his birth certificate. In 1975, Kenneth Bernardo was charged with child molestation and he sexually abused his own daughter. Uh, Marilyn became depressed over her husband's abuse, withdrew from the family, and lived in the basement of their home in Scarborough, Ontario. Uh, though the elder children felt the effects of the emotional and mental turmoil, young Paul appeared to be unscathed by it. That's kind of a sign that he's not <laughs> affected by this. <laughs> that he's not all there. <laughs> Maybe something's wrong with this kid. Um, in a book by Nick Prawn called Lethal Marriage, it is said that Paul, uh, quote, was always happy, a young boy who smiled a lot, and he was so cute with his dimpled good looks and sweet smile that many of the mothers just wanted to pinch him on the cheek whenever they saw him. He was the perfect child they all wanted. Polite, well-mannered, doing well in school, so sweet in his Boy Scout uniform, end quote. That just made me think of all those old movies where the ants come in. Boy, uh, you're so cute. You're getting so big. Yeah, I know. Okay. Um, when Paul was 16, he and his mother got in an argument, and she ended up telling him that Kenneth wasn't actually his father. That's a nice thing. Go, like, growing up thinking one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Paul was repulsed by this and started openly calling his mother a slob and a whore. Very nice. Well done. Um, Bernardo graduated from Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate Institute, opting to work for Amway, whose sales culture had a deep effect on him. Bernardo and his friends practiced their techniques on young women they met in bars and were fairly successful. By the time Bernardo attended University of Toronto Scarborough, he had developed dark sexual fantasies, enjoyed humiliating women in public, and beat up the women he dated. So he was super fun to hang out with. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. no. At least we know he started at a younger age. Uh, uh, in May 1987, so he would have been 23, he acted on his sadistic fantasies and committed his first rape. Bernardo committed multiple sexual assaults, escalating in viciousness, in and around Scarborough, Ontario. Most of the assaults were on young women whom he had stalked after they exited buses late in the evening. That's fucking crazy little bastard. Yeah. In October 1987, he met Carla Homolka. They became interested in each other almost immediately. Unlike the other girls he knew, she encouraged it encouraged his Sadistic behaviors also encouraging his acts as the Scarborough rapist. So I have a rather lengthy timeline of things that he did. <laughs> I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. Okay. So May 4th, 1987, Bernardo committed his first rape in Scarborough against a 21-year-old woman in front of her parents' house after following her home. The attack lasted more than half an hour. May 14th of the same year, so 10 days later, Bernardo committed his second rape. He attacked a 19-year-old woman in the backyard of her parents' house, and this incident, incident lasted over an hour. In July 27th, 87, Bernardo attempted his third rape. Although he beat the young woman, he abandoned, abandoned the attack after she fought back. Good girl. 
December 16, 1987, Bernardo committed his third rape against a 15-year-old girl. This rape lasted one hour. The following day, the Toronto Police Service issued a warning to women in Scarborough traveling alone at night, especially those taking buses. So now they've had this warning out. They screw up so so much. I uh, mean, it's the Toronto Police. Yeah. December 23rd, 1987, Bernardo committed his fourth rape. During this attack, Bernardo raped a 17-year-old with the knife he used to threaten his victim victims. It was at this point he began to be referred to as a Scarborough rapist. April 18, 1988, Bernardo attacked a 17-year-old. The fifth assault, this one lasted 45 minutes. May 25, 1988, Bernardo was nearly caught by a uniformed Metro Toronto investigator staking out a bus shelter. The investigator noticed him hiding under a tree and pursued him on foot, but Bernardo escaped. On May 30th, 1988, Bernardo committed his sixth rape, this time in Clarkson, about 25 miles southwest of Scarborough. This attack was against an 18-year-old girl, lasted 30 minutes. This is terrible. October 4th, 1988, Bernardo attempted a seventh Scarborough rape. His intended victim fought him off, but he inflicted two stab wounds to her thigh and butt, which required 12 stitches. On November 16, 1988, Bernardo committed his seventh rape against an 18-year-old in the backyard of her parents' house. Like, do these girls not scream? I'm not meaning to, like, blame them, but wouldn't you freak out so that someone would hear you? <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering how nobody nobody heard them, though, because yeah. they probably did scream. Yeah, it's weird. Or he threatened them, so they were too scared still. November 17th, 1988, Metro Police formed a special task force dedicated to capturing the Scarborough Rapist. On December 27th, 1988, an alerted neighbor chased Bernardo off after he began his attempted eighth rape. On June 20th, 1989, Bernardo attempted to rape another young woman. She fought against him and her screams alerted neighbors. Bernardo fled with scratches on his face. August 15th, 1989, Bernardo committed his eighth rape against a 22-year-old woman. He had stalked her the previous night from outside the window of her apartment and waited for her to arrive home. This particularly vicious attack lasted two hours. November 21st, 1989, Bernardo committed his ninth rape against a 15-year-old whom he saw in a bus shelter, and this attack lasted 45 minutes. Like, these are kids. Yeah, I'm not going to lie, this, this topic's really pissing me off. <laughs> the, the timeline part's almost over. Uh, December 22nd, 1989, Bernardo committed his 10th rape against a 19-year-old girl. This attack occurred in a stairwell of an underground parking lot and lasted 30 minutes. May 26th, 1990, Bernardo committed his 11th rape. This rape lasted over an hour. However, his 19-year-old victim's vivid recollection of her attacker permitted police to make a computer composite photograph, which was, which was released two days later by police and published in Toronto and area newspapers. So after 11 rapes, they finally have a sketch of who is doing this. Yeah, 11 rapes over three years. Yeah. Um, so in July of 1990, 
Two months after receiving tips that Bernardo fit the Scarborough rapist composite, he was finally interviewed by two police detectives. But they let him go. Imagine that. Yeah, shocking. Between May and September of 1990, the police had submitted more than 130 suspects' samples for DNA testing when they received two reports that the person they were seeking was Paul Bernardo. The first report in June of 1990 had been called in by a bank employee that recognized him from a sketch. And the second call was received from Tina Smyrnas, the wife of one of Bernardo's friends, Alex. Smyrnas told the detectives that Bernardo had been called in on a previous rape investigation um, once in December of 1987, but he had never been interviewed. Alex Smyrnas, so Bernardo's friend, his phrasing was awkward and stilted and consequently left the detectives unsure of whether to take him seriously. After cross-checking several files, the detectives decided to interview Bernardo. The interview on November 20th, 1990 lasted a whole 35 minutes and Bernardo voluntarily gave samples for forensic testing. Like, how cocky can you be to be like, I raped this many girls. Here's my sample. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When the detectives asked Bernardo why he thought he was being investigated for the rapes, he admitted that he did resemble the composite. The detectives concluded that such a well-educated, well-adjusted, congenial young man couldn't be responsible for the vicious crimes and he was released the following day. Are you fucking joking? No, unfortunately. He was too nice to be that much of an oh, ass. Fuck. Um, most, most of the psychotic people in this world are fucking nice. Yeah. It's a cover. Pillars of the community. <laughs> Following the interview, Bernardo drove to St. Catherine's and held a secret meeting with her with Homolka, assuring her that he was not the Scarborough rapist. Bernardo moved permanently to St. Catherine's on February 1st, 1991. The sexual assaults in Scarborough had stopped. Shocking coincidence. <laughs> However, on April 6th, 1991, Bernardo committed his 12th rape, this one in St. Catharines. Again, the victim was young. It was 14. Yeah. Unlike the other attacks, this one occurred early in the morning, and he was not near a bus stop. And then it just gets worse. That shit ever happens to our daughter? Well, we don't have a daughter, but... When we do, though, <laughs> I'll kill myself. Yeah. The cops aren't going to have any fucking... Well, I'm sure all these girls' dad felt that way, too, if they had been able to find him. By 1990, Bernardo was spending large amounts of time with the Homolka family, who liked him. He was engaged to the eldest daughter, Carla, and flirted constantly with the youngest one. He had not told them that he had lost his job as an accountant and instead was smuggling cigarettes across the nearby U.S.-Canadian border. He had become obsessed with Tammy Homolka, peeping into her window and entering her room while she slept. Uh, Carla Homoka helped him by breaking the blinds in her sister's window to allow Bernardo access. In July, Bernardo took Tammy across the border to get beer for a party. While there, Bernardo later, later told his fiance they got drunk and began making out. Like, this is wife's, essentially, little sister. Yeah. <laughs> According to Bernardo's testimony at his trial on July 24, 1990, Carla Homolka laced spaghetti sauce with crushed Valium she had stolen from her employer, Martindale Animal Clinic. 
<laughs> she served dinner to her sister, who soon lost consciousness. Bernardo began to rape Tammy while Carla watched. Wait, that's what? <laughs> you never heard any of this story? No. No, uh, that makes me really wish he got fucking murdered in jail. Well, I mean, he gets attacked a lot. <laughs> it's well-deserved. Um, six months before their 1991 wedding, Carla Homolka stole the anesthetic agent Halothane from the clinic. On December 23, 1990, Homolka and Bernardo administered sleeping pills to the 15-year-old in a rum and eggnog cocktail. After Tammy was unconscious, Homolka and Bernardo undressed her, and Carla applied a halothane-soaked cloth to her sister's nose and mouth. Carla Homolka wanted to give Tammy give Tammy's virginity to Bernardo for Christmas, as, according to Homolka, Bernardo was disappointed by not having been Carla's first partner. Yeah. Oh. I told you I was going to ruin everyone's day. Uh, <laughs> not funny laughter, it's nervous laughter. <laughs> With Tammy's parents sleeping upstairs, the pair filmed themselves as they raped her in the basement. Tammy began to vomit. The pair tried to revive her, then called 911, but not before they hid evidence, dressed Tammy, and moved her into her basement bedroom. A few hours later, Tammy Homolka was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital without having regained consciousness. Oh, and then, get this. <laughs> despite the pair's behavior, vacuuming and washing laundry in the middle of the night, and despite the presence of a chemical burn on Tammy's face, Niagara Regional Coroner and the Homolka family accepted the pair's version of events. The official cause of Tammy Homolka's death was accidental. Choking on her own vomit after consumption of alcohol. That's how they think. Oh my god. The pair subsequently filmed themselves with Carla wearing Tammy's clothing and pretending to be her. They moved out of the Homolka house to a rented Port Dalhousie bungalow to let her parents cope with their grief. They could have caught him so many times. It just goes to show you how stupid the fucking police are up here. Yeah, they just... They don't want to do the paperwork. <laughs> Alright, so, early in the morning on June 15th, 1991, Bernardo took a detour through Burlington, halfway between Toronto and St. Catharines, to steal license plates where he found Leslie Mahaffey. The 14-year-old had missed her curfew after attending a funeral, was locked out of her house, and had been able, unable to find anyone with whom she could stay overnight. Bernardo approached her and told her he was looking to break into a neighbor's house. Unfazed, she asked if he had any cigarettes. As Bernardo led her to his car, he blindfolded her, forced her into the vehicle, and drove her to Port Dalhousie, where he informed Homolka that they had a playmate. Bernardo and Homolka subsequently videotaped themselves torturing and sexually abusing Mahaffey, all while listening to Bob Marley and David Bowie. Like... I'm sure these musicians are like, don't involve us. Because <laughs> that's in, like, that was on a lot of websites of what kind of music they were listening to. Weird. Yeah, that, that's got to make the musicians feel awesome about their music. Yeah. Um, on the tape, Bernardo tells Leslie that she is doing a good job and then the next two hours will determine what happens to her. On another segment of tape played at Bernardo's trial, the assault escalated. Mahaffey cried out in pain and begged Bernardo to stop. 
Mahaffey told Bernardo that her blindfold seemed to be slipping, an ominous development as it signaled the possibility that she might be able to identify both of her tormentors if permitted to live. The following day, Bernardo claimed, Amoka fed her a lethal dose of halcyon. Amoka claimed that instead, Bernardo strangled her, so they were both against each other. What the hell is halcyon? So, I did I thought. Maybe I didn't. Okay, well, you just keep going, and if you cover it, you cover it. If not, then I will look it up. Well, I know I looked it up, because I wanted to know what it was. Because I've never heard of it before. Apparently, I just forgot to put it in my note. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember the big word for it. It's a, it's essentially a, like a really powerful sleeping aid. Like people with insomnia use it. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bernardo and Homoka decided the best way to dispose of the evidence would be to dismember Leslie Mahaffey and encase each piece in cement. Bernardo bought a dozen bags of cement at a hardware store the following day. He kept the receipts, which would prove damning at his trial. Bernardo used his grandfather's circular saw to cut the body. Bernardo and Homolka then made numerous trips to dump the cement blocks in Lake Gibson, eight kilometers, or sorry, 18 kilometers south of Port de Luzi. At least one of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and proved beyond the pair's patience or abilities to sink. It rested near the shore where a father and son on a fishing trip discovered it on June 29, 1991. Leslie Mahaffey was identified by dental records. So, what lake was that? Uh, lake Gibson. I've never even heard of that one. Hey, there it is. Halcyon is a benzodiazepine that is used to treat insomnia. There we go. <laughs> You did remember what it did. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this one, this next story is about a Jane Doe. They they know who she is, but they call her Jane Doe in all the articles and everything used to protect her identity. Which so, I can respect that. Yeah. So on June 7th, 1991, Momoka invited a 15-year-old girl that she had befriended when she worked at the pet store for a girl's night out. After an evening of shopping and dining, Homoka took Jane Doe to 57 Bayview Avenue and began to ply her with alcohol laced with halcyon. Halcyon? I just don't know how it's pronounced. After Jane Doe lost consciousness, Homoka called Bernardo to tell him his surprise wedding gift was ready. They undressed the girl and Bernardo videotaped Homoka as she raped the girl. The next morning, the teen- teenager was nauseous. She believed her vomiting was due to having drunk alcohol for the first time. She did not realize she had been violated. She was invited back to Port Deleuze, so she lived. She was fine. She was invited back to Port Deleuze in August this time to spend the night. Jane Doe, whose identity remains protected by law, stopped breathing after she was drugged and Bernardo had begun to rape her. Momoka called 911 for help, but called back a few minutes later to say that everything was all right. The emergency crew was recalled without follow-up. So she called back to say they were fine. They were just like, oh, okay. So like, no. It should still be. You still need to go. Yeah, you should still go and find (laughs) out. Yeah. Uh, Jane Doe visited the couple once more on December 26th, or sorry, December 22nd, 1992. 
This time, Homoka pressured her to have sex with Bernardo. She got upset and left. So she managed to get out of that whole situation. Wait, so Jane Doe is still alive? Yeah. That's why her identity is, like, protected. Thank God. Yeah. I mean... It sucks, but at least she's alive. Yeah. That's good. She helps lock these fucking assholes up. Yeah. Uh, Okay. We're almost through it. So I can stop wanting to fucking murder him? <laughs> yeah. On like, the afternoon... <laughs> I, I'm not a bad person, but my God, I want to hurt people like this. I know. On the afternoon of April 16th, 1992, Bernardo and Homoka were driving through St. Catharines to look for potential victims. It was after school hours on the day before Good Friday. As they passed Holy Cross Secondary School, a main Catholic high school in the city's north end, they spotted Kristen French, a 15-year-old student walking to her nearby home. The couple pulled into a parking lot of nearby Grace Lutheran Church, and Homolka got out of the car with a map, pretending to need assistance. As French looked at the map, Bernardo attacked from behind, brandishing a knife and forcing her into the front seat of the car. From the back seat, Homolka controlled the girl by pulling her hair. French took the same route home every day, taking about 15 minutes to get there. Soon after she should have arrived, her parents became convinced that she had met with foul play and notified police. Within 24 hours, Niagara Regional Police had assembled a team and searched the area along her route and found several several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different aspects, giving police a fairly clear picture. One of Kristen's shoes was found in the parking lot, so they knew something bad had happened to her. Over three, over the three days of Easter weekend, Bernardo and Homolka videotaped themselves as they tortured, raped, and sodomized Kristen French, forcing her to drink large amounts of alcohol and to behave, behave submissively to Bernardo. At Bernardo's trial, Crown Prosecutor Ray Houlihan said that Bernardo always intended to kill her because she was never blindfolded and was capable of identifying her captors. While Bernardo was out buying pizza on April 18th, he was spotted by Carrie Patrick, whom he had stalked the previous month. Her report to Niagara Regional... Niagara... Why can I not talk? (laughs) Her report to Niagara Regional Police was mishandled by police. As noted by Judge Archie Campbell in his 1995 inquiry into the police investigation of Bernardo's crimes, so any chance of Kristen French being discovered at the Bernardo house was gone. Because they, Carrie Patrick called and like reported that she was being stalked, but it got mishandled, so they were like, well... <laughs> so they could have saved Kristen French. The following day... After Carrie Patrick was like, hey, I see this guy. The following day, the couple murdered French before going to the Homokas for Easter dinner. Homoka testified at her trial that Bernardo had strangled French for exactly seven minutes while she watched. Bernardo said Homoka beat her with a rubber mallet because she had tried to escape and that French ended up being strangled on a noose tied around her neck secured to a hope chest. French's nude body was found in a ditch on April 30th, 1992 in Burlington, approximately 45 minutes from St. Catharines, and a short distance from the cemetery where Leslie Mahaffey is buried. Her body had been washed and the hair had been cut off. It was originally thought that the hair was removed as a trophy 
but Homolka testified that the hair had been cut to impede identification. She is, so Leslie Mahaffey is buried at the same cemetery as Opa. I know. Remember, we stopped and we actually paid respect to yeah, her. Yeah, we walked past her grave like a couple times when we were there. Or a few times. Yeah. So those are his known victims. But the one that was murdered near the cemetery, is that the one on Guelph Line? The cemetery? No, the... Alright, so you know how on roads they put out flowers and homages to people that die at certain spots? Oh, yeah. Isn't there one on Guelph Line just up the road from the cemetery? Oh, I'm not sure. There's one, um, I forget what that road's called, but the one that we turn left on coming out of Burlington to go back to Highway 6. Yeah. There's a... There's a homage right there on the left-hand side. I've honestly never noticed it. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering if that's one of that's yeah. hers. It very well could be. I have no idea. Yeah, I've never noticed it. Yeah, we've seen Leslie Mahaffey's headstone. Just got a picture of her on it. Yeah. It's pretty sad. Um. Okay, so there's a whole slew of other potential victims. There's a long list as well. Okay, in addition to the confirmed murders of Tammy Lynn Homoka, Leslie Aaron Mahaffey, and Kristen Dawn French, suspicions remain about other possible victims or intended victims of Bernardo and or Homoka. Shortly after Tammy Homoka's funeral, her parents went out of town, and Lori visited her grandparents in Mississauga, so that was their other sister, mm. leaving the house empty. On the weekend of January 12, 1991, According to author Stephen Williams, Bernardo abducted a girl, took her to the house, and raped her while Homoka watched. Afterward, he dropped her off on a deserted road near Lake Gibson. Bernardo and Homoka referred to her simply as January Girl. Uh, at about 5.30 a.m. on April 6, 1991, Bernardo abducted a 14-year-old who was warming up for her duties as coxswain on one of the local rowing teams. I should have Googled that, but I don't know what that means. Coxswain? It's a lower uh, person, I guess. But <laughs> um, You continue with that and I'll look it up. Okay. It's C-O-X-S-W-A-I-N. Yeah. Don't worry, I wasn't going to spell like the other cock. <laughs> well, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> the girl was distracted by a blonde woman who waved at her from her car, enabling Bernardo to drag her into the shrubbery near the rowing club. There, he assaulted her, forced her to remove all her clothes, and wait five minutes, during which he disappeared. On July 28, 1991, Bernard Bernardo stalked Sydney Kirshen, 21 years old, after he saw her while driving home from work. Alright, so a coxswain is the steersman of a ship's boat, lifeboat, racing boat, or other boat. Okay. So she was the one that steers... Um, okay, Sydney Kirshen. July 28th, Bernardo started stalking Sydney Kirshen. On August 9th, 1991, he resumed stalking her. This time she took evasive action, stopping at her boyfriend's house just prior to his arrival. After spotting Bernardo, the boyfriend gave chase, came across Bernardo's gold Nissan, and took note of the license plate. The couple re reported the incident to Niagara Regional Police, who established that the car belonged to Paul Kenneth Bernardo. 
a Niagara Regional Police officer visited the Renardo's house where the car was parked in the driveway, but did not pursue the matter, nor did he submit an official police report. Why? <laughs> could have saved so many, like, I don't understand what these cops are like. It, it'll be fine. He won't do anything else. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. All right. So, Lake Gibson, I've driven past it a few times, apparently. Yeah. It's down south of St. Catharines. Yeah. And just west of Niagara Falls. Okay. Yeah, pretty close to Burlington. Yeah. On November 30th, 1991, 14-year-old Terry Anderson vanished about three blocks from the parking lot where Kristen French would be abducted and never return. Terry was a grade 9 student at Lakeport Secondary School next door to Kristen French's school. Terry Anderson and Kristen French disappeared within two kilometers of each other. In April 1992, Niagara Regional Police said they had no evidence to suggest a link. But in May 1992, Terry Anderson's body was found in the water at Port Duluthi. The medical examiner saw no evidence of foul play, despite the difficulties of determining such factors in a body that had been in the water for six months. The coroner's ruling that her death was by drowning, probably as a result of drinking beer and taking LSD, was controversial in light of Leslie Mahaffey's and Kristen French's murder. A newspaper clipping found during the police search of the Bernardo house described a rape that occurred in Hawaii during the couple's honeymoon there. The presence of the article, the rape's similarity to Bernardo's modus operandi, and its occurrence during the Bernardo's presence led police to speculate on Bernardo's involvement. Law enforcement officials on both sides of the border have stated their belief that Bernardo was responsible for this rape, but due to extradition issues, this case was never prosecuted. In 1997, Derek Finkel's book, No Claim to Mercy, was published, which presented evidence tying Bernardo to the murder of Elizabeth Bain, who disappeared on June 19, 1990. Um, this was only three weeks after the last known attack of the Scarborough rapist. Bain told her mother she was going to check the tennis schedule on the Scarborough campus of the University of Toronto. Three days later, her car was found with a large blood stain in the back seat. Robert Baltovich, who has consistently maintained his innocence, was convicted on March 31, 1992, of second-degree murder and the death of his girlfriend. At the trial, his lawyer suggested that the then-unidentified Scarborough rapist was responsible for the crime. He served, so Baltovich served eight years of a life term before being released pending his appeal. In September 2004, his appeal was processed. His lawyers alleged that he had been wrongfully convicted and that Bernardo was guilty of the murder. On December 2, 2004, the Ontario Court of Appeal set aside the conviction. On July 15, 2005, Ontario's Ministry of the Attorney General announced that Robert Baltovich would face a new trial, and on April 22, 2008, after a series of pre-trial motions, including the presentation of evidence implicating Bernardo in the murder of Elizabeth Bain, Crown Attorney Philip, Philip Kotinen advised the court that he would be calling no evidence and asked the jury to find Baltovich not guilty of second-degree murder. So I, I think he 
got off for that one. So on March 29th, 1992, Bernardo stalked and videotaped Shanna and Carrie Patrick. So this is the Carrie Patrick that tried to call and say, hey, this guy's here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, videotaped Shanna and Carrie Patrick from his car and followed them to their parents' house. The Patrick sisters incorrectly recorded his license plate number. Shanna Patrick reported the incident to Niagara Regional Police on March 31st, 1992, and was given an incident number should further information develop. With Kristen French under Hamolka's guard on April 18, 1992, Bernardo went out to buy dinner and rent a movie. He was spotted by Carrie Patrick, who attempted to track him to his house. Despite losing him, she got a better description of his license plate and car, which she reported to Niagara Regional Police. This information, however, was mishandled by police and slipped, slipped into the black hole to which Judge Archie Campbell would refer in the Campbell Report of 1996, an inquiry into police mishandling of evidence in the case. We're almost, we got one more page. <laughs> you can do it. Okay. In 2006, Bernardo confessed to a 1987 assault against a 15-year-old girl. Another man, Anthony Hannemeyer, had been convicted of that assault and served the sentence for it. On June 25, 2008, the Court of Appeal for Ontario overturned that conviction and exonerated Hannemeyer. Who well, at least he got. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so Bernardo's trial... Ber Bernardo. Bernardo. I can't say his name anymore. I just want to vomit. Um, I mean, he doesn't deserve any respect in <sighs> pronouncing his name right, so... Bernardo's... He, he shall now be forever known as Bernard Bitch. <laughs> uh, no. Yes. Okay. Yes. Bernardo's trial for the murders of French and Mahaffey took place in 1995 and included detailed testimony from Homolka and videotapes of the rapes. The trial was subject to a publication ban which applied to Canadian newspapers and media, and the venue was moved to Toronto from St. Catherine, where the murders occurred. The ban did not affect American newspapers and television stations from nearby Buffalo or New York from reporting trial proceedings, which were easily seen in southern Ontario. During the trial, Bernardo claimed the deaths were accidental and later claimed that his wife was the actual killer. On September 1st, 1995, Bernardo was convicted of a number of offenses, including, including the two first-degree murders and two aggravated sexual assaults and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Later, Bernardo was also declared a dangerous offender, making it unlikely he will ever be released. <laughs> and yet he still tries keep or still, still try keeps trying to get parole. Yeah. In return for a plea bargain, so she pled down to twelve years in prison for manslaughter. Yeah, and she's <laughs> been out of jail for quite a while. For ten years. Sixteen now? years. Has it been that long already? Yeah. So in return for her twelve years in prison for manslaughter, Hamolka testified against Bernardo in his trial. This plea bargain received much public criticism from Canadians, as Hamolka's first defense lawyer, Ken Murray, had withheld for 17 months videotapes that Bernardo made. This was considered crucial evidence, and prosecutors said that they would have never agreed to the plea bargain if they had seen the tapes. Murray was later charged with the obstruction of justice, 
uh, for which he was acquitted, and he also faced a disciplinary hearing from the law Law society. (laughs) Jesus. If you could have saw her face just now trying to pronounce that... (laughs) Society. I swear I to God. I benzodiazepine. But yeah, but you can't say that. Your <laughs> eyes started crossing as you were saying it. I was like, oh my gosh, she's broken. Um, yeah. Where did it go? Okay. During her interrogation in 1993, Homoka told police Bernardo once bragged to her that he had raped as many as 30 women, double the 15 assaults police suspected he had committed. She described him as the happy rapist. What? No. (laughs) Bernardo has been kept in the segregation unit at the penitentiary for his own safety. Nonetheless, he has been attacked and harassed. Once he was punched in the face by another inmate while returning from a shower in 1996. And in June of 1999, five convicts uh, tried to storm the segregation range where Bernardo lived and a riot squad had to use gas to disperse them. In 2006, Paul Bernardo gave an interview in prison suggesting he had reformed and would make a good parole candidate. He's not eligible for release in 2010 under the Faint Hope Clause, since he was convicted of multiple murders. Bernardo served his term in the maximum security prison at Kingston Penitentiary, in the segregation unit until 2013 when it closed, and he is now in Millhaven Prison, and I think it's in Bath, Ontario. Millhaven Prison? Yeah. I will tell you here in a second. Okay. That way, if anybody wants to search him out, they can. <laughs> um, Bernardo applied for parole in 2018, and again in 2021, so just this year, and was denied both times. He is eligible for a parole hearing every two years. The families of the victim release, or the, sorry, the families of the victims release a statement to the parole board every time and tell them how they feel. So, Millhaven Institution is up just outside of Kingston. Okay, I thought it was. It is Bath, but yeah. Bath is a super small town. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, he's in Bath. Families of the victims release a statement to the parole board every time and tell them how they feel. Doug and Donna French, so Kristen's parents, said that, quote, a psychopath must never be allowed in a position where he can repeat his atrocities, end quote. Homoka, however, was released from prison on July 4th, 2005. Carla Leanne Homoka, also known as Carla Leanne Teal and Leanne Bordelais, was at one point living in the Caribbean with a new husband, Thierry Bordelais. Thierry just so happens to be the brother of her lawyer, Sylvie Bordelais. She is a mother of three young children and a dog. I feel sorry for her. Um, so now she was found out by a Canadian journalist. So then she came back. She's in Quebec somewhere. That's all they know. She's in Quebec somewhere. Uh, a number of books have been written about the Bernardos, and in October 2005, a motion picture of their story was released under the title Carla, starring one of my favorite actors, who I like a little less because of this, Misha Collins as Bernardo and Lori, Laura Prepon as Homolka. 
So Wait. Donna from that 70s show. Yeah, I know who they are. Yeah. And Cass from Supernatural. I know who they are. They don't like it. Why do you say wait? I was just going to say, I can't believe they're actually making a movie on them. Mate, it's been out for 16 years since oh. she got out of prison. Oh, yeah. oh, awesome. Kristen French, one of Bernardo's victims, is mentioned in the song Nobody's Hero by Canadian progressive rock band Rush. Uh, the Law and Order episode Fools for Love and Law and Order Special Victims Unit episodes Pure and Damaged are based on the events, as is Series 7 of the Inspector Lindley Mysteries, Know Thine Enemy. I'm kind of surprised that they haven't covered it at all in, uh, uh, what do you call that? Criminal Minds? Yeah, Criminal they Minds. Have, they did. They mentioned it a few times. Um, I read that. I just forgot to put it in my notes. Oh, okay. Yeah, they did mention it in a few episodes. Oh. Well, because I was just thinking, if they didn't cover that, which is just as fucked up as the other one, yeah. that uh, that pig farmer. Oh, yeah. They covered that in the show. Yeah. Yeah, they mentioned it a few times in Criminal Minds. I just forgot to type or type out which episodes it was. But yeah, that's the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka. Sorry for ruining everyone's day. Oh, at least you have fun facts. I don't have fun facts. I have fun headlines. Oh, whatever. The same thing. Make make people happy again. Yeah. Well, these are, just to lighten the mood a little, actual Canadian headlines. They are from ebombsworld, E-B-A-U-M-S, world.com. I have four of them. <laughs> They're great. So this one's from PEI. The, uh, this is the actual headline. Coast Guard pilot gets helicopter etiquette lesson after touching down for Tim Horton's run. <laughs> what? He landed his helicopter <sighs> to run to Timmy's. <laughs> okay. Uh, the second one is from Ontario. Actually, the next two are from Ontario. So, this one. Ontario Highway shuts down after Rogue Beaver refuses to leave. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, they stop traffic for geese, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, this next one. City estimates park stairs will cost sixty-five to $150,000. Man builds them for $550. <laughs> so, this was at Tom Riley Park in Etobicoke near Toronto. <laughs> He built them for five hundred and fifty bucks when the city was like it's gonna cost sixty five thousand to a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, and then this last one's from Alberta. Drivers keep hitting large rock in suburban Calgary parking lot. So <laughs> you know <laughs> there's like pictures of cars overturned because they hit this rock every time. Jesus. So you know like if you go into a parking lot and like the curbs meet at a point. Yeah. There's a big rock there. On the grass part. Oh, instead of and a like, curb? Well, no, there's the curb and then like a rock in between them. And people keep hitting this rock and turning their cars over. How? I don't know. <laughs> These <laughs> pictures were great. These people should be on Canada's worst driver. They probably are. Fuck, they better be. All right, so <laughs> I looked it up. Uh, the Criminal Minds episode, Mr. and Mrs. Anderson. Yeah, that one. Contains a serial killer couple loosely based on Bernardo and Homolka. Uh, and the Bernardo case was mentioned by the behavioral analyst 
unit team when they delivered their profile to the local police. Yeah, and it was another episode, too, where Reed mentions them. And I can't remember what it was called, but yeah, there's a couple. Uh, the Canardos Maybe. is another one. That's actually in season two. <laughs> you missed it. I mean, it makes sense because in that episode, they do try and like flip it on each other. Yeah. As to who did the murder. I don't even remember that episode. I do. I know. Okay. That's all I have for today. The next one, I don't know what I'm doing yet, but then the one after that is Halloween. I know what I'm doing on the next one. I have a good story for a Halloween one. It's going to be fun. Oh. It's going to take like the whole next two weeks of research, but it's going to be fun. It might be a two-parter. <laughs> I know mine sure won't be. I might have to do two different things, though. Yeah. But I am going to be covering something that's an experiment on Ron. Yeah. In the U.S. In the U.S. I'm like, going international. Like all of them. International. You're going a four-hour drive. <laughs> yes, that's still international. I guess. All right, so you can find us on Instagram at the Great Weird North Podcast, on Facebook at the Great Weird North, on Twitter at Great North Twenty One, and you can go to buymeacoffee.com/slash Great Weird North if you'd like to support the podcast with different levels of coffees you can buy or different membership tiers, and you can email us your personal spooky stories and any ideas for cryptids or true crimes that you want to hear. I have a couple suggestions already from somebody. I might do one of those next week. And then, yeah. So if you listen to this on Apple podcast, just please leave a review. It's super helpful. And then we can keep doing this. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully they don't kick us off. <laughs> right. That's, that's all I have for today. Yeah. Okay. All I have to. I need the sneeze. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.